Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. If there was one battle the world might have wished had never happened, it might be Tsushima in 1905. This one clash set dominoes falling which would see Russia become the Soviet Union, World War I erupt, and the Pacific theatre of World War II explode at Pearl Harbour in 1941. In its own right, it was a colossal clash of 16 battleships, 32 cruisers, 29 destroyers, and multiple other warships. It announced to the globe that Japan was now a world power to be reckoned with, and its effects, already noted as global, would also have long-lasting implications for Korea, China, and the whole Asia-Pacific region. Implications that still exist today. The story of how it unfolded deserves a grand plaque in history's Hall of Fame. So welcome to the fifth episode of history's greatest naval battles. The Battle of Tsushima. When the American Perry Expedition arrived in Japan in 1853, its warships forced the ruling Tokugawa shogunate to end more than 200 years of isolation. Japan had closed its borders to most of the world in 1639, but the Americans wanted to trade and were prepared to use gunboat diplomacy to get the rights. Japan, whose society, technology, and military were still essentially medieval, puffed its cheeks in exasperation, but was ultimately powerless to resist. What followed was a humiliating climb down for the Japanese as a free-for-all ensued, with the British, French, and others following the US, enforcing Japan to open up its ports and markets. The whole episode was shameful for the Japanese, and for them, Shame was worse than death. It must never happen again. So, the Japanese were convinced of the need to catch up with the West in every way. They adopted the slogan, Enrich the country, strengthen the military. Over the next 40 years, from the 1860s to the turn of the 20th century, Japan experienced an extraordinary political, social, cultural, economic, industrial and military transformation as she rapidly modernised everything in sight. She completed her metamorphosis by adopting imperial ambitions. After all, all the great nations had empires. Even the anti-imperialist Americans took the Philippines, Guam and Puerto Rico after crushing the Spanish in 1898. In short, Japan was hungry for empire, and her avarice fell first upon Korea. But Russia wanted Korea too, and the mighty bear wasn't backing down. In 1904, the Russians rejected a Japanese plan to divide Korea and neighbouring Manchuria into spheres of influence, wanting it all for themselves. Rude. Aggravated by their intransigence, Japan flexed its muscles, 
and at Port Arthur in 1904, the Russians took a beating. In a forerunner of Pearl Harbour, the Japanese launched a surprise naval attack on the Russian Pacific Fleet anchored at Port Arthur. Only afterwards did they declare war. During the assault and at the following Battle of the Yellow Sea, when Russian ships tried to escape, the Russian Pacific Fleet was decimated. Tsar Nicholas II's jaw hit the floor. For the first time in modern history, an Asian fleet had defeated a Western one. And it was his. The effrontery. Russian reputation was at stake and the Japanese had to be put in their place. So, with no real naval force left in the Pacific, Russian commanders decided on the incredible. Sending their Baltic fleet in Europe 18,000 nautical miles or 33,000 kilometres to Asia. This fleet, including 11 of its 13 battleships, would show the Japanese who's boss. Except they should have known what was about to happen when shortly after leaving, they nearly provoked Britain's Royal Navy into war with some really spectacular incompetence. The Dogger Bank incident of 1904 occurred when the Russian fleet was making its way through the North Sea. Rumours had begun to spread that there were Japanese torpedo boats waiting for them, hidden in the mists and channels of the British and Danish coastlines. So when the Russians happened upon some British fishing trawlers, they mistook them for the Imperial Japanese Navy. They fired on them, and in the ensuing chaos, also on each other. Two Russian cruisers were mistaken for Japanese and pummeled by seven of their own battleships. In the mayhem, several Russian ships signalled that they had been hit by torpedoes when they hadn't, and the crew of the Borodino drew cutlasses when rumours spread they were being boarded. The British fishing trawlers had their nets down at the time and weren't able to flee. One was sunk, but the others basically just watched the Russian fleet fight itself. Things could have been a lot worse had Russian gunnery not been so dismal. A report at the time said the battleship Oriel had fired 500 shells without hitting a single thing. The worst damage done was to Anglo-Russian relations, and it nearly sparked war. The British home fleet was scrambled, and 28 Royal Navy battleships surged out of Scapa Flow to confront the Russians. A piece in the London Times the next morning read, It is almost inconceivable that any men calling themselves seamen, however frightened they might be, could spend 20 minutes bombarding a fleet of fishing boats. War with Britain was averted, but the ill-fated Russian fleet should have noted the omens, or at least their own ineptitude, and headed home. But on they sailed, having to go all the way around the Horn of Africa, now that Britain refused them use of the Suez Canal. Finally, a full six months after setting off, 
the Russian Baltic fleet arrived in the East China Sea, just south of Japan. The plan was for them to sneak through the Straits of Tsushima between Korea and Japan itself, link up with the remnants of Russia's Pacific fleet at Vladivostok, and come back south to overwhelm the Japanese. But their sneaking was spotted at Tsushima, and the entire Japanese fleet raced to intercept them. On the 28th of May 1905, the first shots were fired. The Russians, perhaps having practiced gunnery en route since the Dogger Bank debacle, hit early. In just five minutes, the Japanese flagship Mikasa was hit 15 times, and another 15 by the end of the battle. The British Royal Navy captain Sir William Pakenham was a naval attaché stationed on board the Japanese battleship Asahi. He described the scene when she too was hit early in the battle. An explosion under the afterbridge of the Asahi filled the air with flying fragments. Of these, one fell underfoot. It was the right half of a man's lower jaw, with the teeth missing. Everything and everybody for 20 yards around was bespattered with tiny drops of blood. But just as it seemed the Russians might capitalise on the early success, a string of confusing orders created mayhem in their formations, changing and changing again. And they were slow too after six months at sea, with exhausted crews and marine-fouled hulls. Now, Togo used the Russian chaos and snail-like pace to the max, crossing the T on their lines twice. Crossing the T was a classic naval warfare tactic of the 19th and mid-20th centuries, where a line of warships would cross in front of a column of enemy vessels. This meant your broadsides could bring thunder down on your enemy, while they were only able to reply with their forward or rear guns. Having the Japanese be able to cross your T twice was both embarrassing and devastating. One after another, shells from the Imperial Japanese Navy hit home on the Russian ships, still trying to reorganise. As if things weren't bad enough, the Russian Admiral Rochestvensky was knocked unconscious by shrapnel, and while the remaining commanders prevaricated and wavered with indecision, Togo was aggressive and resolute. He had served on a British battleship for two years, and studied his hero, the legendary Horatio Nelson, and his tactics at Trafalgar a hundred years earlier. Now he brought these very same tactics to bear at Tsushima, by driving through the disorganised Russian lines, breaking them apart even further as he poured fire upon them with superior gunnery. While the Russians were using armour-piercing shells which went right through decks, but did relatively little damage, the Japanese used high explosives, wrecking superstructures, communication towers and gun placements. One Russian commander, Vladimir Semenov, said, It seemed impossible even to count the number of projectiles striking us. Shells seemed to be pouring upon us incessantly 
one after another. The steel plates and superstructure on the upper decks were torn to pieces, and the splinters caused many casualties. Iron ladders were crumpled up into rings, guns were literally hurled from their mountings. In addition to this, there was the unusually high temperature and liquid flame of the explosion, which seemed to spread over everything. I actually watched as steel plates catch fire from a burst. Japanese shells were unrelenting. There was no respite, and the more the Japanese poured fire and smoke upon the beleaguered Russians, the less they were able to reply. Like the British at Trafalgar, the Japanese crews were well drilled, and they were using the latest in gunnery firing systems and technology. While Russian fire was disparate, sporadic, and inaccurate, Japanese salvos were relentless, coordinated, and precise. Soon those salvos began to tell. The first Russian casualty was the battleship Oslabia, sinking beneath the waves after just 90 minutes. Another, the Borodino, was one of the newest Russian battleships, but her youth did not protect her when a Japanese shell from the Fuji scored a direct hit on her magazines. A colossal explosion tore the ship open, renting and twisting her steel hull. She too sank, with just one survivor from a crew of 855. By nightfall, the Russian battleships Kinyaz Suvorov and Imperator Alexander III had followed them to the bottom of the sea. The Japanese had lost nothing. But the nightmare had only just begun for the Russians, because as night fell, the Japanese destroyers and torpedo boats struck. Togo released 51 of them like a pack of wolves, and like a pack of wolves, they chased down their prey in the gathering darkness, tireless and excitable at the thought of the kill. The lights of two Russian hospital ships gave away the fleet's position in the gloom, and what began can best be described as a turkey shoot. The Japanese boats, trained at night fighting, danced around the tired and wounded Russian bear with speed and agility, darting in to deliver torpedoes and darting away again before the big guns could swipe at them. The attacks went on for three hours, and by the time the Japanese had finished with them, the Russians had lost another two battleships and two armoured cruisers. The strain was immense on the Russians causing panic, errors and collisions. Their fleet had scattered in fear and now no longer posed any coherent threat. But Togo still couldn't let what remained reach Vladivostok. So the next morning, his refreshed main fleet awoke and took up the chase. By now, the Russian commander of the only group of Russian vessels left, Rear Admiral Nabogatov, was fleeing northwards at all the sluggish speed he could muster. But Togo caught him and began pounding him once more. Quickly, Nabogatov realised he was now outnumbered, outranged and outmatched, and ordered the International Signal for Surrender, XGE, to be raised. But sadly for the Russians, 
the Japanese didn't have this code in their books and continued pummeling them. Desperately, Nabogosov had white tablecloths raised as flags of surrender. But Toga didn't trust it, thinking it was a ruse to lure his fleet closer. Incredibly, Nabogosov now stopped his fleet altogether and hoisted the flag of the Imperial Japanese Navy, praying that the Japanese would understand his intentions. Seeing this, Togo eventually ordered a ceasefire and Nabogosov negotiated the Russian surrender. He knew he'd probably be shot when he returned to Russia, but he told his crew, you are young and it's you who will one day retrieve the honour and glory of the Russian Navy. The lives of 2,400 men in these ships are more important than mine. In the end, neither Rochestvensky nor Nabogatov were executed, but both were imprisoned for several years, and each lived out their lives with tattered reputations. The reality was that while poor Russian commands certainly did contribute to the defeat, there were other, more damning factors. Togo was a more experienced and decisive commander, and the Japanese were using a superior form of wireless telegraphy in naval warfare for the first time, allowing them to communicate instantly up to 70 miles. The coordination this gave them was worth its weight in gold. They were using better firing systems and technology, high explosive shells and newer, faster ships armed increasingly with bigger guns. The British attaché, Captain Packenham, reported back to London that the greater number of big 12-inch guns on the Japanese ships had made a critical difference in the battle, and the effect was instant. Britain's number one priority at the beginning of the 20th century was maintaining global naval supremacy. They designed and launched HMS Dreadnought the very next year. So revolutionary was it that she gave her name to a whole new class of battleships, all exclusively sporting the very largest guns available. It sparked a naval arms race with Germany, the tension of which contributed hugely to the outbreak of World War I. The Great War was also made more likely by the damage done to Russia's prestige. In the wake of Tsushima, Germany and Austria-Hungary viewed the Russian military as something of a joke, not to be taken seriously. They could now happily ignore any threats from Russia, regarding them with contempt. The result of that was catastrophic after a certain Austrian archduke was assassinated in Sarajevo in 1914. And if this wasn't enough to confirm Tsushima's huge impact on world history, another literally revolutionary impact was on Russian society and politics. The defeat sent already simmering resentment into outright mutiny, erupting as the 1905 revolution, which in turn led inexorably to the Bolshevik October Revolution of 1917. Lenin himself said that 1905 was the great dress rehearsal, without which the victory of the Bolsheviks in 1917 would have been impossible. Ipso facto, 
without Tsushima, it's possible the Soviet Union would never have existed. And finally was the almost Herculean sense of invincibility Tsushima gave Imperial Japan. So resounding was it, so total over a major global power, that it convinced the Japanese that with even more ships, bigger, faster and more capable than ever before, perhaps no power could stop her, not even Britain or the United States. It was this surge of national confidence which encouraged Japanese ambitions for a wider Asia-Pacific empire in the 1930s, that it felt it could boldly ignore the League of Nations' condemnation of its conduct in China, and ultimately led it to Pearl Harbour in 1941. If the overwhelming Japanese victory at Tsushima isn't breathtaking enough, its wide-reaching, long-term, global ramifications across two world wars and the rise of Soviet communism is, frankly, astonishing. In my view, it's one of the most history-shaking naval battles of all. Join us next time for the penultimate episode in this series when we look at the end result of the dreadnought arms race between Britain and Germany in 1916. In the Battle of Jutland, 44 battleships and more than 200 other warships duelled on the choppy waves of the North Sea. It would decide which country would suffer maritime blockade and national starvation. And its outcome played a deciding role in the conclusion of World War I. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.